Good evening and welcome once again to another episode of the Friday Night Parkdale Special. I'm your host Joyrider coming to you live from the Dollhouse in downtown Toronto with my feline co-hosts Chatty G, Silent J, and Floofmaster Toby. And this is episode 112. Tonight's show was very nearly something else entirely. If you follow me on social media, you know I was a bit torn earlier this week when I learned of the death of Dave Smith, the inventor of the Prophet series synthesizers and the man behind MIDI. So much of the music that I love would have sounded very different, at least, without his work, and the kind of impact he had on music is up there with Dr. Moog. But on reflection, I want to make sure that I give myself enough time to really do a memorial show for him properly, and two days simply wasn't enough. And really, I was already so far down the rabbit hole with what I'd been working on that it would have been hard to make that abrupt shift with a modicum of grace, rigor, and accuracy. So we'll come back to Mr. Smith in a few weeks. But tonight marks 100 days of war in Ukraine, and it is also 60 years since Khrushchev and Kennedy held a summit in Vienna. And so tonight will be the first of two parts looking at music throughout the history of the Cold War, and it's a much broader window of time than many might realize. For me and my peers, the Cold War was something we were born into, but ended by the time we were teenagers. But Gen X wasn't the only generation born into the Cold War. It's not just me and my friends who remember duck and cover drills. It's our parents' generation, too. And for all of the fear that we had in the 80s during Star Wars, thinking of the satellites hovering above us that could set off nuclear strikes at any moment, our parents experienced similar fears as kids, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. According to the history books, the Cold War began at the end of World War II and continued until the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1990. There's an argument to be made that the Cold War never really ended, it just took on a different shape after the fall of communism in Russia through the development of oligarchies and the use of the internet to seed disinformation campaigns and election interference in the last 10 years or so. But that's outside of the scope of these episodes. For now. One of the things that always confused me as a kid was how a wall in a German city was part of a struggle between the US and the USSR. I knew the term the Eastern Bloc, but that didn't really explain how countries on either side of the world had a stake in this one city. The reality is that when you look back across the entire 45-year span of the Cold War, many countries got pulled into the conflict, especially as globalization ramped up international trade, whether independent or colonial, and the fight for resources made isolationism an unwise policy at best and destructive at worst. Even those who weren't directly involved in the conflict would be tied to a side as a result of economic agreements and proxy wars. And so while the Cold War officially began in 1945, its roots go back much further to 1917. Revolution broke out in Russia in 1917, and over a span of five years, this saw the end of the monarchy, the beginning of the communist system, and the formation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, 
also known as the USSR, as it would be known until the beginning of the 1990s. This financial, political, and ideological system was pretty alien to the rest of the world, and capitalist governments were immediately wary of this system, perceiving it as a threat to their power, which was primarily based in money. However, when the Second World War began, the Allied powers realized that they needed Russia on their side. Strategically, the USSR was key to stopping the Nazis. Geographically, they could act as a containment to Nazi forces, they had massive numbers of troops, and were not only experienced, but very successful with fighting in the winter, as had been proven during Napoleon's failed Russian invasion in the early 1800s. And so, if there had been misgivings about partnering with communists, they had to be set aside for the good of the world, at least for the duration of the war. Fast forward, then, to 1945. The Second World War has ended, and after two world wars having been instigated by Germany, the Allied powers want to ensure that Germany will never again be in a position to start something like that. They divide Germany into four areas, with four Allied countries having dominion over those parts. Britain to the northwest, France to the southwest, the US to the south, and the USSR to the east. Berlin, the capital of Germany, is smack dab in the middle of what is Soviet territory at the time, but it too is similarly divided into four occupied zones, with the USSR having control of the eastern half of the city. This division is the line where the Berlin Wall would be built about 15 years later, in the early 60s. While Germany was being divvied up, the U.S. was also dropping the atom bombs dubbed Fat Man and Little Boy on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And although the USSR had known that the U.S. was developing atomic weapons because of spies they had installed in the U.S., this global display of power was what truly began the atomic age. Also around this time, communist ideology was beginning to spread to Korea, China and Vietnam, as well as Czechoslovakia and Greece. In 1950, the US would invade Korea, and in 1961, they would invade Vietnam. Because of the spread of communism and the awareness of those early Soviet spies, the CIA was formed in 1947, and this led to the McCarthyism of the 1950s, a paranoid rooting out of so-called commies and reds at every level of society, a program which encouraged people to rat out their friends, neighbors, and even family. This culminated in the executions of American citizens, Julian and Ethel Rosenberg. A few months after the formation of the CIA, the UN decided to take part of Palestine and use it to establish Israel. This action would set the Arabs against the so-called Western world for decades to come, thus pulling both Israel and the entire Middle East into the Cold War going forward. The Middle East would become a Soviet proxy in the Cold War conflict from the 60s right on up through the 80s which is how we ended up with players like Bin Laden, who's said to have received CIA funding during the 80s, well before the Al-Qaeda attacks of 9-11. Now, this is all a very Coles Notes view of things. Cliff Notes for our American friends, Spark Notes for our younger listeners, 
and I by necessity am skimming a ton of detail here. This is, after all, a music history show, not a history podcast. If you want more detail, I would absolutely encourage you to read, watch, or listen to more, and I will happily post some resources in the show notes. But hopefully, this information is enough to give you a vivid sketch of the big picture and to help contextualize the music we're going to be listening to tonight. Even so, with that context, it's hard for us, looking back more than 70 years, to understand how people in those days perceived communism as a threat big enough to justify executions of their own citizens, invasions of faraway countries, and the repeated meddling in the democratically elected governments of other countries such as the Congo and Cuba in the 1960s and Chile and Cambodia in the 1970s. Why was the public so willing to go along with these things for so long? In the 1950s, it was a different world. It wasn't as shiny, picture-perfect as the ads of the time might have you believe, but most white Americans still trusted their government, still believed in the righteousness of manifest destiny and the truth of American exceptionalism, and after the war, felt that not even the sky was the limit. Anything and everything was possible. And if the government said that the commies were a threat to their way of life, then that was that. No ifs, ands, or buts. It wasn't until the lies of the Cuban Missile Crisis were exposed that the trust of many Americans in their government began to crumble. The music of the anti-war movement of the late 60s illustrates that distrust handily, as well as a growing cynicism. But there were other cultural and social shifts happening in the U.S. during those early post-war days, and listening to some of the earliest Cold War era music, there's an audible contrast between those who still believed in their America the Beautiful and those who had seen the rot and death under the feet of Lady Liberty, so much so that some of the songs made me gasp in surprise when I first listened to them. Nothing in history has ever been a simple black or white answer because we as humans are never so simple as black and white. We are capable of profound kindness, an unfathomable cruelty, a morass of contradictions that can exist not just within a society, but within a single person, shifting between those extremes from one moment to the next, which makes history a hard study when done honestly. We want it to be simple and digestible, but it isn't, because humans don't work that way. And I think that's really the most important lesson that we can learn from history, that the truth exists in the contradictions and gray areas between the thought and the act. It would be easy to say that the Cold War is a predictable result of the evil that men do, not just to gain money and power, but to keep it and wield it and grow it. And that's certainly a big part of it, but not all of it. Those nuances are not something I can explore properly here, but I want to make it clear that even in those early post-war days, social attitudes towards communism were not exactly binary. In those earliest days, that's where we're going to start tonight. All the way back in 1945, not long after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This is the Slim Gaillard Quartet, and the song is called Atomic cocktail. It's the drink that you don't pour. Now when you take one sip, you won't need any more. It's small as a beetle, as big as a wheel. Boom, 
atomic cocktail Falls and splice all around the place When you see it coming, just grab your suitcase It'll send you through the skies like air mail Boom, atomic cocktail You push a button, turn the dial Your work is done for miles and miles When it hits, it's bound to shake Because you feel just like an earthquake That's the drink that you don't pour When you take one sip, you won't need any more You're small as a beetle, big as a whale Boom! Atomic cocktail Turn the dial Your work is done For miles and miles When it hits Bound to shake Because it feels like An earthquake That's the drink That you don't pour Now when you take one sip You won't need any more If you're small as a beetle Or big as a whale Atomic cocktail catchy. A couple of interesting sidebars before we continue. The phrase Cold War was first used by George Orwell in an article he wrote in 1945. And the first use of the phrase Iron Curtain was used by Winston Churchill in 1946. This next song was originally recorded in 1949 by Floyd Tillman, This is Floyd Tillman, and the song is called This Cold War With You. The sun goes down and leaves me sad and blue The iron curtain falls on this cold war Like you and me 
those cold, cold wars are never done And whose hearts just can't be free Oh, let's do right Or let's just say we're through I just can't stand another cold, cold war with you Next, we have an unusual song. It was parenthetically called the Duck and Cover Song, and it was intended to be something that would be catchy enough for little kids to remember so that in case of a nuclear attack, they would know what to do. And I can't help but mentally draw parallels between Bert the Turtle and the fact that so many children are growing up now with active school shooter drills, especially in the wake of the Uvalde shootings last week. From 1951, this is Dick Tutun Baker, and the song is called Bert the Turtle, or the Duck and Cover Song. There was a turtle by the name of Bert, and Bert the turtle was very alert. When danger threatened him, he never got hurt. He knew just what to do. He'd duck and cover, duck and cover. He'd hide his head and tail and four little feet. He'd duck and cover. He hid beneath his little shell until the coast was clear. Then one by one his head and tail and legs would reappear. By acting calm and cool he proved he was a hero too. For finding safety is the bravest, wisest thing to do. And now his little friends are just like Bert And every turtle is very alert When danger threatens them they never get hurt They know just what to do They duck and cover Duck and cover 
they hide their heads and tails and four little feet they duck and cover. He hid beneath his little shell until the coast was clear. Then one by one his head and tail and legs would reappear. By acting calm and cool he proved he was a hero too. For finding safety is the bravest, wisest thing to do. And now his little friends are just like Bert, and every turtle is very alert. When danger threatens them, they never get hurt. They know just what to do. They duck and cover, duck and cover. They hide their heads and tails, and four little feet they duck and cover. They duck, 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 duck. And cover. I think what stands out to me as being the most bleak thing about the whole duck and cover myth is that just imagine for a moment all of these little kids hiding under their desks in their classrooms, believing that that will save them from a nuclear attack. And the saddest part is, not all the kids actually even believed that it would keep them safe. In talking to my dad about this, he said he knew that it was crap, but that's what you did, because that was the time. And that's really hard to imagine. Up next, we have one from Arthur Big Boy Crudup, also released in 1951. This is Dig Myself a Hole. This world is in an uproar People singing a song The way these reds is cutting up Ain't gonna be long I might dig myself a hole Move my baby down in the ground You know when I come out There won't be no walls around Now they take me to the riverfront to cross the deep blue sea. My baby's wondering, man, what become of me? I'm I dig myself a cave, move my baby down in the ground. You know when I come out, there won't be no walls around. Somebody else, I might dig myself a cave, 
move my baby down in the ground You know when I come out There won't be no walls around The next few selections that I'm going to play for you are from a fantastic compilation called Atomic Platters, which can be found at atomicplatters.com. It's an incredibly broad selection of songs from this early time, and it crosses a ton of different genres. From their webpage, they talk about being interested in presenting the first generation of songs that were written during the Cold War period, works that are less familiar to the public than the songs produced during the folk rock period of the 60s and after. And one line in particular goes on to say that the pondering the cultural climate that encouraged songs like 1957's profoundly strange yet catchy atom bomb baby is a lot more rewarding than examining the obvious metaphors from a pre-electric Dylan protest song like A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Up next, from that compilation, Atomic Platters, Cold War Music from the Golden Age of Homeland Security. This is the Leuven Brothers, The Great Atomic Power, released in 1952. Surely save his children from that awful, awful fate. Are you 
It's also worth bearing in mind that during these early days of the Cold War, America was very much a religious country, and that was reflected in a fair number of the tunes of the time. Up next, also from Atomic Platters, and again, I cannot recommend this set highly enough, this is Jim Eanes' song, They Locked God Outside the Iron Curtain. children cannot play and the people have forgotten how to pray it's a land where peace and friendship should be tried but an iron curtain keeps the lord outside they lock god outside the iron curtain on old Satan they have placed a kingly crown But this evil nation will never find salvation Till the Lord tears the Iron Curtain down It's a nation full of hate and full of fear where a man must whisper so no one can hear And all those who dare object have quickly died While an iron curtain keeps the Lord outside They lock God outside the iron curtain On old Satan they have placed a kingly crown but this evil nation will never find salvation Till the Lord tears the Iron Curtain down They have tried to chop away the rugged cross But someday the Lord will show them who is boss he will count the faithful standing at his side And in judgment he will lock the rest outside They lock God outside the Iron Curtain On old Satan they have placed a kingly crown But heaven's great power fatal hour when the Lord tears the Iron Curtain down. With some of these artists, it's so hard to tell how in earnest they are or how much of it is sarcasm. And without much knowledge of the artists themselves, I kind of have to take it at face value. That being said, up next is another from Atomic Platters, this one by Ray Anderson, and it was released in 1953 after the death of Stalin, and it is called Stalin Kicked the Bucket. Stalin kicked the 
warriors from now on. He lived in a place they call Moscow. His number came up and he had to go. Yes, old Joe's dead and gone. He stayed around too long. And nobody now can save his hide cause old Joe laid right down and died. Since old Joe's taken his last ride, yes, old Joe's dead and gone. He stayed around too long. And nobody now can save his hide, cause old Joe laid right down and died. He died with a hemorrhage in the brain. They have a new fireman on the devil's train. Yes, old Joe's dead and gone. He stayed around too long. And nobody now can save his high cause. Old Joe laid right down and died. Cause old Joe Stalin will keep the fire Yes, old Joe's dead and gone He stayed around too long And nobody now can save his hide Cause old Joe laid right down and died After the death of Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev would take power, and he was far more progressive than Stalin had been, in fact undertaking in time a program of de-Stalinization to remove fawning tributes to the former leader who had killed so many of his people. 1953 was also the year that Castro first attempted to overthrow the government in Cuba, and while the attempt failed, he would be back. 1954 saw the end of McCarthyism with the Senate voting to censure him, and in 1955, civil war began in South Vietnam, and China began to provide aid to North Vietnam. Up next, from The Crown City 4, this was released in 1955, and it's titled Watch World War Three on Pay TV. Watch World War III on Pay TV. 
On the screen, what a face you know. Isn't this better than Bishop Sheen? Better than the Late Late Show? Watching the boys from your hometown, fighting whoever they are. Watching the cities falling down, it's greater than Jack Barr. They're all setting up the cameras now. Though they don't know just where, still they've got to prepare. definitely get the feeling from that one that some people had a very good understanding of how final a nuclear war would actually be. In 1956, the Suez Crisis began, and that was an issue related to a shipping channel in Egypt that had opened in the 1880s. The majority of the land around the Suez Canal was owned by the British and French, and when the Prime Minister, Nasser, made efforts to improve his country's conditions via an intended dam, the U.S. offered Egypt money and support. However, President Eisenhower reneged on that promise when he found out that Nasser had been buying weapons and jets from the Soviets. This broken promise angered Nasser and put Europe at risk of being cut off from Middle Eastern oil supplies. UN countries wanted to force the Suez to be under international control and took the case to the UN. The UN sent in troops, but before they did, Israel invaded Egypt and the British Prime Minister Eden was accused of having foreknowledge of the Israeli attack and of lying about it in the press. In mid-1957, the Soviet Union asked Britain and the U.S. to stop nuclear testing. Britain's response, five days later, was to conduct its first test of a hydrogen bomb over Christmas Island. About a year later, in 1958, Khrushchev would make a similar appeal to Mao Zedong in China, and a few months after that appeal, the Soviet Union would demand that all foreign troops leave Berlin. Meanwhile, back in Cuba, Fidel Castro attempted another revolution and was this time successful. He and his troops marched into Havana in early January of 1959. In 1960, a U.S. spy plane would be shot down in Soviet airspace, the pilot captured and held. Khrushchev told the world what happened and demanded that Eisenhower apologize for spying. Eisenhower claimed that the CIA had done it without his knowledge, and besides, they had every right to check on the Soviets to make sure that they weren't lying about what they had. Khrushchev was not buying this and stormed out of the meeting. There was eventually a prisoner swap in early 1962, but the incident was an ugly one that did nothing to improve relations between the two countries. 
Also in 1960, East Germany blockaded West Berlin, sowing the seeds for what would eventually become the Berlin Wall. The Soviets offered help to Congolese Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba, and he would be assassinated less than four months later. Then, in the spring of 1961, came the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was a CIA-led operation initiated in large part by Vice President Nixon in an attempt to overthrow and or assassinate Castro. They would attempt to kill Castro hundreds of times in the following years, and Castro capitalized on their failures, bragging that he was unkillable. In the fall of 1961, the U.S., under President Kennedy, promised to support South Vietnam against communist aggressors of the North, and U.S. troops would begin to arrive in Vietnam in December of 1961. Up next, from Mike and Bernie Winters, released in 1961, this is called Fallout Shelter. I'm in my radiation station A 14-day supply of multi-purpose food A TV set I'm sure to include Build a bomb bungalow One of your own With no down payment and a government loan After the first anniversary of Kennedy's inauguration, he ended trade with Cuba. This, unsurprisingly, is when the Soviet Union stepped in to help Cuba via the provision of arms. In October of 1962, Kennedy stated that the Soviets had built a missile base on Cuba. 
The missiles were considered defensive weapons, which they were within their rights to have, but it put the U.S. in a bad spot because they were still using those same spy planes that Khrushchev had been angry about a few years earlier, but now they were using them to spy on Cuba, which is how they knew about the missile base to begin with. And so, with midterm elections coming up, Kennedy wanted to protect his power, and U-2 spy plane flights over Cuba were curtailed. But the U.S. was also now aware of long-range missiles, considered offensive weapons, which were outside the bounds of so-called fair play. Kennedy called for a naval blockade of Cuba, which would prevent Soviet aid from reaching Cuban shores. The first time Soviet ships encountered the blockade, they stopped short of the blockade, and Khrushchev sent Kennedy an angry letter accusing him of manufacturing a crisis to bolster Democrat standings in the midterms. Khrushchev wrote again a few days later, saying they'd be willing to withdraw from Cuba on two conditions. The U.S. not invade Cuba should the Soviets pull back, and the U.S. would remove their similar bases from Turkey. While Kennedy was considering these terms, word came through that another U-2 spy plane had been shot down over Cuba. U.S. Navy ships in the area were trying to force a Soviet submarine to the surface, and because of communications issues on board, two of the three men who were needed to sign off on the use of special weapons on board the sub were pressing to use a nuclear torpedo on the U.S. ship chasing them. One man stood firm against this and likely saved the world from all-out nuclear war. His name was Vasily Alexandrovich Arkhipov, and the importance of the decision that he made that day was never properly recognized within his lifetime, and in fact he was shamed by his superiors upon his return. He died in 1998, and the truth of the situation would not be revealed to the public until 2002. Up next, we have one from Sonny Russell that came out in 1963. This is called 50 Megatons. Well, I was blown out of bed, hit in the head, saw three flags of atomic bread. Spun around town, shot in the ground, swirling, swirling down faster than sound. It was a 50 milliton. It was a 50 milliton. It was a 50 milliton hydrogen Electorating an atomic bomb Well, a rocket passed me I climbed up a tree Just then some got hold of me in the tree He shot on off Friday 5th 6,000 miles away from here It was a 50 milliton It was a 50 milliton It was a 50 milliton hydrogen Electorating an atomic bomb I ran over to the edge of the moon The ground gave way, I fell into a deep lagoon It was a 50 milliton It was a 50 milliton It was a 50 milliton Hydrogen Electorating atomic bomb Well, I landed at the bottom of a deep dog trailer Made it 
with a space alligator. Now it isn't me. I can hardly see. There's a motherfucker floating and it swallowed me. It was a Pippi Miller time. It was a Pippi Miller time. It was a Pippi Miller time. A high school jump. Like the radiant atomic bomb. Understanding exactly how close they had come to global destruction over a mistake led to the installation of a direct line between Khrushchev and Kennedy so as to avoid any future miscommunications with nuclear weapons in play. Shortly after the installation of that line, Kennedy would visit West Berlin, the speech in which he declared himself a donut. Five months later, he would be assassinated. But before his assassination, this song was released. This is by Louisiana Red, and it's called Red's Dream. It was a dream. I dream I went to the UN and said the whole Asian right. I call no Castro Turn him on the floor Looked him right in the eye and said, boy You got to go I'm tired of your foolishness If you don't behave I'm gonna grab you by your beard Get your Georgia shade It was a dream Then I saw Khrushchev sitting there looking bad. Get that junk out of Cuba, for you make me mad. Dig up the missile bases, take them planes and all. Or oh, I grab me a bat, use your head for the ball. It was a dream. Watching, they call me, and I win. That'll be the guess of the president. So, Red, I'm glad to see you. So glad you come down here to help me run the Russians from the Western Hemisphere. I said, Look, Jack, you run the country. I'm gonna run the Senate. I'm gonna make a few changes. Few soul brothers in it. Ray Charles and Lightning Hopkins. Guy like Jimmy Reed. 
Bodily Big Maybell. All I need was a dream. Up next, we have one of the more well-known songs of the Cold War era from Bob Dylan, also coming out in 1963. This is Masters of War. I'm your masters of war. Here build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs Here that hide behind walls Here that hide behind discs I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done nothing But build to destroy You play with my world like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther When the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive a world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain You fasten all the triggers for the others to fire and Then you sit back and watch When the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion While the young people's blood Flows out of their bodies And is buried in the mud He's thrown the worst fear That can ever be hurled Fear to bring children Into the world For threatening my baby Unborn and unnamed You ain't worth the blood That runs in your veins How much do I know But to talk out of turn You might say that I'm young You might say I'm unlearned But there's a one thing I know I'm younger than 
Jesus would never forgive what you do Let me ask you one question Is your money that good? Will it buy you forgiveness? Do you think that it could? I think you will find When your death takes its toll All the money you made will never buy back your soul And I hope that you die And your death will come soon I follow your casket By the pale afternoon I watch while you lord Down to your deathbed And I stand over your grave Till I'm sure that you're dead So now we move on from 1963, with the exception of the Six-Day War between Israel and the Arab states in June of 1967, the bulk of the events that would occur during the decade after the Cuban Missile Crisis would be primarily related to the Vietnam War. There were also some major events in Chile during this time the election of socialist Salvador Allende in 1970, Castro visiting Allende in 1971, and then the coup of Augusto Pinochet and the assassination of Allende in 1973, shortly after the last U.S. troops were pulled out of Vietnam. This, from 1965, is Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction. Exploding, violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me. you understand what I'm trying to say? Can't you feel the fears I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there's no running away. There'll be no one to save with the world in a grave. Take a look around you, boy. It's bound to scare you, boy. And you tell me Sitting here just contemplating I can't twist the truth It knows no regulation 
Handful of senators don't pass legislation And marches alone can't bring integration When human respect is disintegrating This whole crazy world is just too frustrating And you tell me China, then take a look around to Selma, Alabama. Uh, you may leave here for four days in space, but when you return, it's the same old place. The pounding of the drums, the pride and disgrace. You can bury your dead, but don't leave a trace. Hate your next door neighbor, but don't forget to say grace and tell me. So much of the music of the late 60s and early 70s was focused on the war in Vietnam that it would be easy to do an episode just on that, but anti-war protest music of the 60s is something that gets looked at a lot, and I feel like spending too much time on it would be rehashing ground that's been covered many times before. The Vietnam War was part of the Cold War, but it was only a part. And so we're going to move on at this point and continue to focus on the Cold War as a whole. That being said, in 1965, there were a pair of songs that would have fit very well in the Answer Songs episode that I did almost a year ago, episode 66. This first one from Donovan, who was born in Scotland, and is not only still alive, but had a moment of resurgence in the rave scene. I'm going to have to look that up and learn a little bit more about that because I had no idea. He also featured in an episode of Futurama as himself. This song by Donovan came out in 1965 and it's called Universal Soldier. He's five foot two and he's six feet four He fights with missiles and with spears He's all of 31 and he's only 17 He's been a soldier for a thousand years He's a Catholic, a Hindu, an atheist, a Jain A Buddhist and a Baptist and a Jew and he knows he shouldn't kill And he knows he always will Kill you for me, my friend, and me for you And he's fighting for Canada He's fighting for France He's fighting for the USA And he's fighting for the Russians And he's fighting for Japan And he thinks we'll put an end to war this way 
And he's fighting for democracy, he's fighting for the Reds. He says it's for the peace of all. He's the one who must decide who's to live and who's to die. And he never sees the writing on the wall. But without him, how would Hitler have condemned him at Laval? Without him, Caesar would have stood alone. He's the one who gives his body as a weapon of the war. And without him, all this killing can't go on. He's the universal soldier and he really is to blame. His orders come from far away no more. They come from here and there and you and me. And brothers, can't you see? This is not the way we put the end to war. Up next is an artist that we have touched on before. This is Jan and Dean, and as I said, this would have fit perfectly in the Answer Songs episode. As a retort to Donovan's Universal Soldier from that same year, this is Jan and Dean's Universal Coward. Yeah. 
still in 1965. Next up, we have one from Tom Lehrer, who is not, to my knowledge, a relation to Jim Lehrer of the McNeil Lehrer Report in the 1980s. This song is called So Long, Mum, parenthetically, a song for World War III. This year we've been celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Civil War and the 50th anniversary of the beginning of World War I and the 20th anniversary of the end of World War II. So all in all, it's been a good year for the war buffs. <laughs> and a number of LPs and television specials have come out capitalizing on all this nostalgia with, with particular emphasis on the songs of the various wars. I feel that if any songs are going to come out of World War III, we better start writing them now. <laughs> I have one here. <laughs> you might call it a bit of pre-nostalgia. This is the song that some of the boys sang as they went bravely off to World War III. I'm off to drop the bomb, so don't wait up for me. But while you swelter down there in your shelter, you can see me on your TV. While we're attacking frontally, watch Brinkley and Huntley, describing contrapuntally the cities we have lost. No need for you to miss a minute of the agonizing Holocaust. He was a U.S. pilot and no shrinking violet, was he? He was mighty proud when World War III was declared. He wasn't scared, no siree. And this is what he said on his way to Armageddon. So long, Mom, I'm off to drop the bomb, so don't wait up for me. But though I may roam, I'll come back to my home Although it may be a pile of debris Remember, Mommy, I'm off to get a commie So send me a salami and try to smile somehow I'll look for you when the war is over An hour and a half from now That sort of satirical songwriting was really his bread and butter, and he was involved with the show That Was the Week That Was. He retired in the early 70s to teach math and musical theater history, and he is still with us. As far as I can tell, he lives in Santa Cruz, but he was born in Manhattan. Up next, this is the song that absolutely horrified me when I first listened to it. This is by Marty Robbins, and it came out in 1966. This is Marty Robbins' Ain't I Right. You came down to this southern town last summer to show the folks a brand new way of life But all you've shown the folks around here is trouble And you've only added misery to their strife Your concern is not to help the people And I'll say again though it's been often said Your concern is just to bring discomfort, my friend 
And your policy is just a little red Now ain't I right? Ain't I right? Ain't I right? It matters not to you how people suffer And should they you consider that a game You bring a lot of trouble to the town and then you leave That's part of your communistic game I detect a little communism I can see it in the things you do Communism, socialism, call it what you like There's very little difference in the two Now ain't I right? Ain't I right? Your followers sometimes have been a bearded, bathless bunch There's even been a minister or two A priest, a nun, a rabbi, and an educated man Have listened and been taken in by you All the country's full of two-faced politicians Who encourage you with words that go like this Burn your draft card if you like, it's good to disagree That's a get acquainted communistic kiss. Now ain't I right? Ain't I right? Ain't I right? One politician said it would be nice to send some blood and help the enemy in Vietnam. That's what he says. Here's what I say. Let's just keep the blood. Instead, let's send that politician man. Let's rid the country of the politicians. Who coddle tramps that march out in our street Protesting those who want to fight for freedom, my friend This kind of leader makes our country weak Now ain't I right? Ain't I right? Ain't I right? Let's look and find the strong and able leaders It's time we found just how our neighbors stand If we're to win this war with communism Let's fight it here as well as Vietnam Let's rise as one and meet our obligations So communistic boots will never trod Across the fields of freedom that were given to us With the blessing of our great almighty God Across the fields of freedom that were given to us With the blessing of our great To be fair, I suppose, he was born in 1925, and so some of his attitudes make a bit more sense in that context, but wow. (laughs) He was also a NASCAR driver. Moving on from one of my favorites, this is Creedence Clearwater Revival and their 1969 song, It Came Out of the Sky.
Next up, from 1970, this is the Dubliners, The Button Pusher. I am the man, the well-fed man in charge of the terrible knob. The most pleasing thing about it, it's almost a permanent job. When the atom war is over and the world is split in three, a consolation I've got. Well, maybe it's not, there'll be nobody left but me. I sit at me desk in Washington in charge of this great machine. More vicious than Adolf Hitler, more deadly than Strickenine. And in the evening after retiring, they just to give me self a laugh. I hit the button, a playful belt, and I listen for the blast. Well, I am the man, the well-fed man in charge of the terrible knob. The most pleasing thing about it, it's almost a permanent job. When the atom war is over and the world is split in three, a consolation I've got. Well, maybe it's not, there'll be nobody left but me. If Brezhnev starts his nonsense and makes a nasty smell up, with a wink and a nod from Nixon, I'll blast them all to hell. And as for that fella Castro, him with the sugar cane, he needn't hide behind his whiskers, I'll get him just the same. Well, I am the man, the well-fed man in charge of the terrible novel. The most pleasing thing about it, it's almost a permanent job. When the atom war is over and the world is split in three, a consolation I've got. Well, maybe it's not, there'll be nobody left but me. If me wife denies me conjocular rights or me breakfast milk is sour, from eight to nine in the morning, you're in for a nervous hour. The button being so terribly close, it's really a dreadful joke. I fuck with me ass as I go past and me lull go up and smoke. Well, I am the man, the well-fed man in charge of the terrible knob. The most pleasing thing about it, it's almost a permanent job. When the atom war is over and the world is a consolation I've got Well, maybe it's not there be nobody left but me Now I'm thinking of joining the army The army that bans the bomb We take up a large collection And I'll donate me some For without it, I am helpless And that's the way to be You don't have to kill the whole bloody lot To make the people free Now, we've talked about this next artist in previous episodes. Edwin Starr was involved with the Motown label and his song, War, What Is It Good For? Absolutely Nothing, Say It Again, was his biggest hit. But he also had some other songs that were anti-war. And this one, again, was written by the team of Strong and Whitfield, and we talked about them in the Motown episodes. They were part of the genius of Barry Gordy. From 1971, this is Edwin Starr's Stop the War Now. 
definitely hear Whitfield and Strong in the songwriting, particularly when you think about Edwin Starr's previous song, War. And it's so much his style. That being said, War is the better of the two songs. But I wanted to play something that we hadn't heard before. In 1974, 
Nixon would resign under the cloud of the Watergate scandal, and while fighting would continue between North and South Vietnam, the major focus of the Cold War would shift back to the Middle East, with the PLO officially being recognized by 20 Arab nations in 1974, and after some fighting in the intervening years between Israel and the Arab states, Soviets would then invade Afghanistan in 1978. This was the backdrop on which David Bowie would record his Berlin trilogy, which consisted of the albums Low and Heroes, which both came out in 1977, and Lodger, which came out in 1979. The album Low was recorded in Berlin, and many of its songs talked explicitly about the Berlin Wall. And by this point, the wall was more than just a barbed wire barrier. It had become essentially two large concrete walls that had a a sort of corridor in the middle. And it was manned by soldiers with guns. And over the years, over 100,000 citizens would attempt to leave East Germany, and more than 600 of them were shot and killed by border guards or died in other ways during their escape attempt. This next song, as I said, from 1977 is by David Bowie, and it's called Weeping Wall.
in episode eight, I touched on the influence that Florian Schneider of Kraftwerk had on David Bowie. You can really hear the influence that German bands like Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk had on the sounds that he was interested in at the time. Next up, we have a song by Warren Zevon, who is also an old favorite of mine. His last album, titled The Wind, was stunning. It's rare that an artist knows that they're dying, that their time is limited, and has the ability to not just take the time to reflect on their mortality and the end of their life, but to also record an album and bring in a number of friends and associates to collaborate on that album. If you enjoy Warren Zevon at all, I would strongly recommend listening to that album from start to finish without interruption. It's it's beautiful. But from 1978's Excitable Boy. This is Warren Zevon's Lawyers, Guns, and Money. Guns 
Next artist up actually got her start when she was 19 years old, although she had been writing songs since she was 11. Her first two albums were released in 1978, and her third album, released in 1980, was titled Never Forever. She would have been 22 at the time. This song that we're going to listen to next is told from the point a view of a fetus in a woman's body post-apocalypse. This is Kate Bush's Breathing. Oh, 
Next up, we're going to listen to one from Peter Gabriel, which seems fitting given that he and Kate Bush have worked together over the years. Peter Gabriel began his solo career with his debut album in 1977. From his third album, which among fans is simply known as the Melt album, this is 1980's Games Without Frontiers.
is blue They all have hills to fly them on Except for Lin Taiyu Dressing up in costumes Playing silly games Hiding out in treetops Shouting out rude names some fantastic remixes of that song over the years. Although Deep Purple formed in 1968, they split in the late 70s, and some of the members went on to form Whitesnake, and some of the members went on to form Gillen. And Gillen was uh, headed by the previous lead singer of Deep Purple, vocalist Ian Gillen. This song from their second album under the name Gillen was called Future Shock and the song that we're going to listen to next from 1981 is titled For a War Doctrine that has existed at least conceptually probably as long as war has been around. To quote now from Wikipedia, one of the earliest references comes from the English author Wilkie Collins, writing at the time of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. I begin to believe in only one civilizing influence, the discovery one of these days of a destructive agent so terrible that war shall mean annihilation, and men's fears will force them to keep the peace. The principle is essentially that each side holds a weapon so great that neither side will exist if either one were to use it. This is said to be quote-unquote rational deterrence, but it doesn't seem terribly rational. And when the term mutually assured destruction was coined by Donald Brennan, to quote again from Wikipedia, a strategist working in Herman Kahn's Hudson Institute in 1962, he did so quite purposefully. It spells out mad, which in England is typically used to mean crazy, because indeed 
the idea of living with your finger on the button of a weapon that would destroy the world was truly quite mad. Again, from Gillen, this is mutually assured destruction. last song for the night comes to us from another artist whose career began when they were quite young, 18 as a matter of fact, in 1977. He had an album in 1978 and he followed that up with a self-titled album in 1979, then a third album in 1980, and then from his fourth album, which came out in 1981, entitled Controversy, we will now follow in the footsteps 
of our sibling show, Prophecy, and close it out with a track by Prince. This, from 1981, is titled Ronnie Talk to Russia. That's our show for tonight. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's always a pleasure to have you share some of your week with me. If you'd like to support the show, go to the FNPS.com. All the social media links are at the top right, including my coffee link and the show's Patreon link. Patrons get access to my scratch pad, as well as early notice of bonus shows and some fun merch, as well as access to the private Brown Bag Wednesday stream. And I think I almost have the technical issues figured out. Might be a couple more weeks, but it is coming. Whether short-term or long-term support, your coins help me pay for hosting, streaming, and new tunes to keep the show both on the air and fresh. There's also a suggestion box on the site, so if you have show ideas, drop them in there. I look forward to hearing them. As always, be well and stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Have a good one.